Broadcasting live from the Business Radio X studio in Atlanta, it's time for Senior Salute Radio. Senior Salute Radio is presented by the Elder and Disability Law Firm of Victoria L. Collier. Hello, and welcome to Senior Salute Radio. I am your host, Victoria Collier. Senior Salute Radio brings timely information to leading-edge boomers and seniors addressing the issues of aging, caregiving, and maintaining quality of life. Each show, we also highlight the life of a senior. Today, we will be talking about financial fraud and exploitation. With us today are Allison McLeod from McLeod Tax and Consulting and Brian Smiley of Smiley, Bishop, and Porter. And we will announce our celebrated senior later. So thank you so much for being with us, Allison and Brian. Thank you very much for having us, Victoria. Absolutely. And so, Allison, I'd like to get started with you um, in that you are a CPA, correct? Yes, I am. Great. And so I imagine that means that you can see uh, people's money or at least the flow of their money and their income. Yes, that's exactly right. (laughs) And so what are some concerns that seniors either do have or should have with regard to their money? That's a good question, Victoria. Uh, Although all of us have good reason to be concerned with safeguarding our financial assets, seniors often have a specific set of circumstances Uh, that put them at greater exposure uh, to financial predators. Seniors often enlist the help of others, so there's folks coming in and out of their home quite frequently. Um, Sometimes there's issues with uh, cognitive ability, so their decision-making might not be what it once was. Um, And and oftentimes they're a little bit reluctant to uh, reach out to others for help when it comes to wondering if if something that they've been approached with is a legitimate offer or maybe if they know for sure that they've been a a victim of fraud. They they don't like to tell others because they're concerned that others will see that maybe they can't handle things for themselves. And what I've also noticed is that, you know, the senior population, um, however you want to define that today, but let's say from the 70-year-old and up, um, they just come from a different mindset of trust, uh, and that lends them uh, as easier prey for a fraud. Is that right? I think that's a very good point, Victoria. It's uh, They it grew is, up in a different world. Yeah, people knew each other a little bit better back then, and it, nowadays it's very easy to hide behind a website that looks legitimate or something along those lines, and, and very easy to put yourself out there as an expert or someone who wants to help when uh, you really have bad intentions. And so when you say fraud, explain what you mean by fraud, the term itself. Sure. Uh, You know, it could be a few different things, but in this context, I would very simply define it as a deliberate attempt on someone's part to uh, take money from someone by promising things that just really aren't real. They're not true. So for an example, the solicitation in the mail that looks like a bill, yeah. but it's not actually a bill. Yeah, that could be, it could be something that says, you've, you've won. You've won this sweepstakes. You've run, won this trip. You've won this cruise. And all we need is, you know, your name, your social security <laughs> number, your, your date, date of birth. birth. Oh, yeah, all the good yeah. stuff. And really, there's nothing behind it. There's just, they're trying to get at your personal information. And have you uh, seen the movie Nebraska um, that has to do with uh, a senior citizen that is travels across 
I think Nebraska, um, in order to get his winnings, his lottery winnings, just like what you're talking about. Um, and and he doesn't have Alzheimer's, although the news media kind of indicated that he did. Uh, I've seen the movie because I made myself watch it because it has to do with what we do. Um, I wouldn't recommend it necessarily. But <laughs> <laughs> but it's exactly what you're talking about. He had this, you know, this letter, the solicitation that he kept in his pocket, kept in his hat, um, and by God, he was going to go get that winnings. And uh, so anyway. Um, now, can you talk a little bit about the issue of identity theft, which is a bit different than fraud, right? and why it's common among the senior population as well? Sure. So identity theft is a federal crime. So if this is something you think has been an issue with you, there, there are laws against it, and there are laws there to protect you. Uh, ID theft is when someone obtains and uses someone else's personal sensitive information for their own gain. So again, it's going back to getting those great numbers, your social security number, your date of birth, your address, telephone number, all the, that good information, and, and taking that and doing some, some pretty bad things with them. Uh, a couple of high points that seem to be uh, targets are your taxes and your credit. So one thing that folks can do when they get a hold of your social security number mm -hmm. is take that, use it as their own, get a job, and they have cash from their job, and you have income reported <laughs> to you under your social security number. I see. So they get tax-free income while you are paying the tax on it. <laughs> right, right. And, and kind of you could get a double whammy when someone takes your social security number and other information and files a fraudulent tax return. So they could request a, a refund on that return send it to whatever address they choose, and it's under your social security number. So they have cash, you have a problem with the IRS. That is so interesting. My mind doesn't even work that way. Um, <laughs> That's <laughs> good. Think of things like that. Um, you are listening to Senior Salute Radio, presented by the Elder and Disability Law Firm of Victoria L. Collier. And we are currently speaking with CPA Allison McLeod, talking about financial fraud, uh, specifically those against seniors. Now, why is it more prevalent among seniors? Well, you know, that really applies to the issue of credit and for seniors, they've just had a little bit longer to build up that really great credit. So when someone takes their, again, great information, their social security number and their date of birth and, and all that other good information, it's really easy to go out and apply for a credit line because um, you already have that long-standing history of good payments and timely payments. You know, it's funny. I met um, some clients yesterday and they have uh, what some would consider substantial assets. It's just under a million dollars, all of it in CDs. And mm -hmm. he's never had a credit card. And so, you oh, know, <laughs> that's the kind of person these um, uh, fraudsters do not want to get in touch with, I suppose, because he has no credit whatsoever, good or bad. So, Well, <laughs> but my guess is he's pulling money out of his bank account somehow. And if he's using a debit card, that can also be a little bit dangerous because the protections there for debit cards aren't quite as consumer-friendly as they are for credit card users. How are people getting access to their to other people's Social Security numbers, their date of birth, their address? That's a great question. Uh, there's a few different ways. So we have our information out there, and it's on paper. 
and it's also stored electronically. So sometimes there's things outside of our control where our information is just out there, and you read stories about it all the time where folks hack in and and they grab a, a bunch of usernames, passwords, and then they have access to a lot of things. So that's oftentimes outside of our control, but usually what is inside of our control is just safeguarding our data, safeguarding our numbers. So if it's a card, a social security card, if it's a birth certificate, if it's something sensitive that you rarely use, put it in a safe deposit box. You know, don't don't carry these items around with you on your person. If you have to dump out checks or things like that, make sure you tear everything up or shred it and don't don't leave it sitting around so that it's obvious that it's trash and that it's interesting to others. So basically, it's it's information that's you know accessible to others, like caregivers, other family members. Sometimes even I just cringe sometimes when some of my clients take a taxi to my office, um, and you know they've got their whole big pocketbook out there. You know, yeah. I'm like, oh. yeah. um, so you know, you said keep it in your safe deposit box or only take it with you when you need it. But what are some other actions that seniors can take or their caregivers can take to protect their um, identity? Sure. Um, you know, one of the easiest things to do is, as we were kind of alluding to earlier, is folks will get unsolicited requests for your information. So if you get something in an email or in the mail or a telephone call and someone just wants to take care of something for you and all they need is your social security number to make that happen, if you haven't solicited solicited them for them to ask you that question, why are they doing it? Probably not for a good purpose. So there's nothing wrong with pausing and saying, hey, let me call you back. Let me get a number. Um, and, and researching that information or going to someone else and, and running it by them. Uh, I'll let people know that the IRS is never going to send you an email unsolicited <laughs> at all. And I have seen some of these emails that clients have forwarded to me asking me if it's legitimate. And it looks so good. It looks so close to a page on the IRS website or something that I would see come from them, but it's not. They do. You know, I mean, I get the emails all the time too, and I'm getting better at taking a look at them. But, you know, I mean, as a lawyer, I'm younger. I'm not in that population that trusts everybody. However, you know, I mean, I see them and I'll send them to my computer guy and say, is someone fishing me? (laughs) You know, so, um, so it happens to everybody. Yes. Um, yes, it does. And it's just often harder for, for seniors to make that distinction. But it's, it's hard for all of us, really. And so is there a difference between financial fraud and financial explo- exploitation? And if so, what is financial exploitation? Yeah, I would say really the difference here that, that makes sense to discuss is that, you know the exploitation is more something that happens with folks that you know and trust. The fraud's coming from outside sources that you may or may not have contact with before. But the exploitation is you know, a family member, uh, another caregiver, someone who's close to you and ha- has access to your financial data or you know, your money itself. Uh, you know, some examples of that might just be in, you know, you leave cash around because you like to pay in cash or you, know, you just have it for whatever purpose and someone's in your home and they take it. Maybe jewelry, it's missing the next day. Mm-hmm. So it could be, you know, it could be letting someone have access to your bank accounts, your investment accounts, and then they take out of them. 
more than what you gave permission. So, for oh, yeah, example, yeah. if you say, here's my debit card or here's my credit card, go buy me some groceries mm-hmm. once a week. Yes. But now they're out there buying, you know, all kinds of things for themselves, shoes. Mm-hmm. and um, yeah. So that would be exploitation? Yes. Okay. Um, I had, um, I used to do guardianship work, which I don't as much uh, now, but... I had one of my saddest cases was a younger lady under the age of 65, but disabled, had frontal lobe dementia, which means that they don't understand the insight, their limitations. They have no insight to their limitations and had a um, 20-year younger male influence that um, ultimately moved in. She was completely paralyzed, so had to rely on someone else for, you know, everything physically and uh, was getting a mortgage on her house and uh, definitely taking whatever cash and all the caregivers, too. I mean, just basically he invited everyone in to um, even the TV was walking away, things like that. So that would be exploitation. Oh, definitely. (laughs) All right. Um, And so what are some actions that uh, seniors and caregivers can do to then prevent exploitation? Sure. Uh, One of the things I always advise clients to do is just see that need coming down the road where you will have a time in your life where you'll seek out the help of others around you who are in those trusted positions to help you pay the bills, manage your finances, and know that today you don't need that help, but you will. And so go ahead and get those people on your team now. Make sure that they know that at some point you're going to go to them and and ask for that help. And that will help you in advance so that when the time comes that you do need that help, they can recognize that. So what I like what I heard was you said, do that in advance. Yes. And there are documents that can help with that. Get advanced directives, such as a financial power of attorney. Yes. Naming someone you trust. Yes. In order to protect you. Um, And being willing to say, I need some help. That's so hard. It is hard. Um, But... It's much harder to recover from fraud and financial exploitation if all your assets are gone. Yes. Right? Well, you are listening to Senior Salute Radio, presented by the Elder and Disability Law Firm of Victoria L. Collier. And we are speaking with Allison McLeod, CPA, and someone who helps seniors make sure they're not taken advantage of. And so, Allison... um, What are other things that seniors can do to help set themselves up for long-term success in handling their finances? So let's say they're protecting themselves from fraud and exploitation, but are there other things they can be doing so that just managing their finances goes the way it should? Sure. That's a great question. You know, it's it's not always uh, the issue of someone with nefarious purposes at your door. Sometimes it is just needing that day-to-day help. So again, I would say it, it really pays to have yourself set up for success by having folks sort of in your back pocket who they are alert to the fact that one day you will need some help and they're ready to step up. Uh, what often happens is the time comes you need help and you turn to whoever is available and availability is not a skill set. <laughs> so you're operating in crisis mode instead right. of um, operating off decisions you would have yes, made when exactly. you had time to think about it. Mm-hmm. And, and unfortunately, that crisis mode, as you say, sets the tone from there on out. Mm-hmm. So it's, it's important to have all of those players put in place before the need arises. But what if someone doesn't have a good support system? They don't have 
good family members or even just any family members. Um, so what do they do then? Sure. No, that's a good question as well. And, and folks can be in that situation for a lot of reasons. They can have, uh, you know, it's like you say, there aren't any family members or maybe none close by or maybe none with time or, uh, you know, sometimes they just unfortunately don't trust the people that are closest to them. And sometimes they can't. Uh, you're, you're exactly <laughs> right. You're exactly right. So one thing they can do is reach out to someone like me, um, a CPA or other qualified individual to establish a relationship and get help just managing money on a daily basis. Someone who's looking at their accounts, making sure there's no unexplained transactions, making sure that they're checking account balances, making sure that they're living within their means. Because um, a lot of seniors are on fixed incomes and, you know. And rising debt. <sighs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Now, I've, I've heard the term money managers or daily money managers. Yes. How do seniors know when they're getting someone who's qualified versus someone who's just done it for their family, their grandma? Um, or, you know, I mean, are there qualifications for this? And is there a way that they can protect themselves even from a money manager? Yes, it, it is unfortunate. And, and sometimes, you know, it's you know, it's always unfortunate when it's a family member that you have to run from. It's <laughs> sometimes even more unfortunate when it's uh, someone who's supposed to be your financial advisor. You know, you've paid them money and they've not done their job. You really want to look for someone who's held to a fiduciary level of uh, service for you. Someone who it's their job to put your needs above their needs. And so someone who has their own professional insurance. Oh, gosh, yes. That yeah. person definitely needs to have outstanding malpractice liability <laughs> insurance. And what difference um, does it make or what is the unique factor that you bring into it by having your CPA credentials as well? I think that goes back to the fiduciary level of obligation and also just the background in public accounting. You really want, when it comes to managing your money, especially as you, you age and, and things aren't quite the same as they used to be, you want someone who has a good set of professional skills, good judgment, good experience, someone who's not easily bamboozled, someone who's not just going to be a yes man and, and go along with everything that, that you've you're deeming necessary when maybe that's not part of the plan you had originally. Or being pulled from different sides from yes. family yes. members um, who think it should be done this way and another one should be done that way. And then that leads me to my last question, which is, you know, with the duties you listed out, some of which paying bills, balancing checkbooks, you know, which are very real needs that people have either because of mm -hmm. cognitive decline or even just physical inability sure. um, or just I'm tired. I don't want to do it. Yeah, um, that's a lot of it right there. <laughs> I need someone to do that for me. Um, but, you know, I mean, why can't just family members do that? Well, you know, and sometimes they can. You know, it's, it's often a child, a child living nearby that that responsibility falls to. And that can often make sense. Um, but sometimes what that does is create tension. You know, if there's multiple children, um, again, availability is not a skill set. So you may be reaching out to the child who lives nearby, but not the one with financial savvy. Mm -hmm. uh, sometimes you don't want that responsibility put on your children. You just want to spend good time with them. You exactly. So it's, it's you know, if you're going to be here at my house for an hour, I want you to be paying attention to me, yeah, not my books. Yeah, exactly. And, and so there, you, there's, 
the built-in opportunity for tension amongst family members with that. So sometimes having a disinterested but caring third party who's involved and who's credentialed and concerned is a relief for everybody. And what I have, I'm going to contradict myself now because <laughs> earlier I said, you know, they are of the trusting generation, but yet also the secretive one. And so, you know, privacy is very yeah. big for them too. And having a third party neutral person uh, can also make them just feel more comfortable yes. that, you know, they're remaining private. Mm-hmm. Um, well, thank you so much, Allison, for sharing your input from a CPA's perspective on money management when seniors are not able or are beginning to need more assistance with their finances and how to protect them from both fraud, exploitation, and themselves. Thanks, Victoria. Absolutely. Now, how can people, Allison, get in touch with you? Uh, they can find me on my website at mcleod-cpa.com. Uh, my email address, my telephone number are there. Great. Wonderful. Thanks so much. Thank you, Victoria. Now, when people, when we're talking about seniors and financial fraud and exploitation, uh, it is not always from family members and caregivers. Sometimes it is from the professionals they hire. And we have with us today Brian Smiley, a partner, a lawyer at the law firm Smiley, Bishop, and Porter. Hi, Brian. Hi, Victoria. Now, what do you know about financial fraud? (laughs) Gosh, uh, for the past 30 years, I've been representing investors uh, of all ages, but increasingly and particularly seniors, who have uh, woken up one sad day to discover that the million dollars they thought they had uh, could be $300,000, it could be zero, or they might owe money. Well, now isn't that just a product of the stock market? Not a bit. (laughs) Not a bit. (laughs) (laughs) Well, what are some common types of investment frauds that victimize seniors? Okay, I I, I sort of divide the world into rip-offs and felonies. Okay. Uh, Both both of them sound bad. They're both unfortunate. (laughs) But sometimes I think I reconstruct accidents, and sometimes I think I'm a crime scene investigator. Okay. So on the rip-off side, there are very bad investments that Wall Street firms peddle not because they're good for clients, but because they're good for the brokerage firms that sell them. High commissions. Very high commissions. Uh, you know, I don't want to be absolutely categorical because for some people under some circumstances, some of these investments make sense. I never see them, but right. hypothetically, but variable annuities are a very bad investment for senior citizens. Almost always. Almost always. <laughs> and so let's just say right here, we're not giving legal advice or financial advice to anyone. Every particular situation is different. However, generalizing, variable annuities are bad. They're very bad. Yeah. They, and, and there's nothing you can do with a variable annuity that you can't do cheaper, uh, but to a lot less financial advantage of a broker. Mm-hmm. But they tie up your money for years. Uh, index annuities are another terrible investment for seniors, pretty much for anybody. Uh, there are a lot of... In general, a lot of high-commission mutual funds make very little sense for seniors because, basically, they don't perform any better than low-cost ones. You do not get what you pay for. It's exactly the opposite. Uh, Those are bad investments. So that's on the one side. Then you have, on the crime scene investigator side, felonious behavior. I mean, we're, we're currently representing a group of seniors from around here, basically, Uh, whose broker had them take money out of their brokerage accounts and including out of their IRAs and then return it 
for investment in forms uh, in the form of checks to him, which he said were rollovers of their IRAs in different accounts, mm-hmm. and he simply stole the money. Mm. And this was life insurance proceeds. Uh, there, this was money out of IRAs. So we ended up with clients who not only lost their money, but they owed pay taxes on that thousands, tens of thousands of dollars of taxes for money they didn't get. Now, where does a person, a financial advisor, who makes that kind of transaction, uh, how do they explain to their client where the money went? It just lost in the market, or or what? <laughs> they lie. <laughs> Uh, here in in the instance that we're dealing with right now, but it's been a similar pattern, they will produce for the client completely phonus, phony financial reports. Oh, okay. So you'll get something that looks like an official brokerage firm statement, and it will show three or four or five hundred thousand more dollars than in fact you have. What you gave to them, essentially. Right. Exactly. And, and what duties do stockbrokers owe to their clients? Uh, under most states' law. And as a general precept, they, they owe a duty of good faith, of fair dealing. They owe a duty, uh, there's a particular duty called suitability. The duty is that a broker is supposed to look at the particular client, including factors such as their age, and make a determination about what investments are good for that client. Uh, for example, a, 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 as we mentioned, variable annuity, a variable annuity that you can't withdraw for seven years without a penalty, is not a good investment for a 70- or 80-year-old client. Here recently, I've seen one with 15 years. Exactly. Mm-hmm. exactly. For someone who's in their 80s. I'm like, right. really? <laughs> and and the, you know why there's that penalty for early withdrawal? It's to compensate the firm because they paid the broker a huge commission when he sold the annuity. Mm-hmm. Right. So uh, the, those penalties are not for your good. They're for the benefit of the people who sell them. Right. And the risk, of course, to so many is that they've got a crisis, they need access to that money, and it's not there without paying tens of thousands of dollars in those penalties to get it back. Exactly. So with the suitability rule, basically that just means I'm looking at this particular client with what um, products or services may be best suited to their need versus just a buying a shirt off the shelf. Exactly. For example... Um, it may be completely suitable for a 30-year-old man or woman who's got a good business career going, got a lot of disposable income, and is investing for the long term to trade speculative stocks. Sure, buy Google. Mm-hmm. But that may not make any sense at all for a senior who might have imminent medical needs, and if Google takes a big dip, can't afford the loss. And I've heard a rule of thumb, um, and maybe you could clear this up or uh, affirm or deny, but um, I had a client not long ago that had like 96% of their assets in like mutual fund stocks and things like that. And what another advisor said is usually you would take 100, subtract their age, and then only that percentage should be in the higher risk stocks. Uh, So this particular person, let's say they were 85, so 15% in stocks and Stuff tied to the S and P, I guess, um, versus ninety six percent. Is that a good rule of thumb, or is it really even that's too generalized? We really should be looking more at the person and their risk factors. I think it is a good rule of thumb. Uh, another way to put it is invest your age in bonds, and by bonds I mean fixed income. It could be money market, it could be municipal bonds, etc. But the uh, uh, 
you know, in effect, if you're 50 years old, you can have 50% of your assets in bonds, 50% in equities. If you're 85 years old, uh, let me rephrase that, 85%, 85% should be in, in bonds, 15% in equities. Equities give you a little bit of growth for the long term. It's probably worth having. But you certainly don't want to be 80 or 90% invested in equities when you can't withstand a market dip. And so I'm going to challenge you for a second because I thought I heard that when we were talking about unsuitable investments for seniors uh, that you mentioned even indexed annuities are bad, but yet you just said – and so like let's talk about the fixed index income annuities because uh, you just said anything that produces fixed income is good. So am I, am I hearing two different things we're, or are there – We're talking two different things. Okay. Yeah, there, there, are, there are genuine income annuities which are, uh, in effect, uh, it's almost like an insurance policy, and you get a fixed payout. Right. That's one thing. There are another, there's a hybrid-type investment that ties the performance to an index like the S&P 500. And it always sounds good. It sounds like you have an upside, but it really doesn't. Mm-hmm. Okay. So. And so how do people know um, – when their stockbroker is a good stockbroker or their investment advisor is a good investment advisor, how can they check that out before doing business with them? The first step you ought to take is to go to the website of FINRA. That's the Financial Industry Regulatory Authority, F-I-N-R-A. If you go to their website, they have on the right side of the box uh, something called broker check. And you can put your, your individual broker's name in there and see if he or she is actually a registered FINRA broker. If they are not, you could stop there. <laughs> you need to make sure that if they're pretending to be a stockbroker, they are in fact licensed. When you, when you click on that, you can get a, a fairly detailed report that will tell you about their employment history, where they're currently employed, and it will also tell you if there are any complaints. Now, is this report free, or do you have to pay for that? It's free. Now, investment advisors, you can go to the same place, and they'll route you to the SEC's website, and you can get similar information about registered investment advisors. And I've understood that registered investment advisors, um, to hear them speak, um, and RIA is, is what they go by, is that they have a higher fiduciary duty to their clients, um, than just regular financial advisors or CFPs. Can you address that a bit? Sure. Um, The world of financial professionals does tend to break into uh, registered representatives, also called investment advisors to make things confusing on one side, and registered investment advisors on the other. Uh, The RIAs, the people who are actually registered as investment advisors, who don't typically work for mainstream brokerage firms, they have a fiduciary duty. In other words, they can't sell you a variable annuity that is good for them and bad for you. Uh, They're prohibited under their rules and under general law from doing transactions that are against your best interest but in favor of theirs. Uh, Most of them, the ones you want to deal with, I think the CFP designation, Certified Financial professional, you do want that. You do want to see that on their name. You would typically want to deal with a fee-only 
financial advisors. So in other words, they don't make commissions on what they sell you. You also typically want to deal with one who doesn't have custody of the assets you give them. So they give you advice. They may actually run your account, but your account is at an E-Trade or Ameripri- not Ameripri- a, a Fidelity, Schwab, some third-party firm, so that you're getting copies of confirmation slips and monthly statements from them to verify that your money's really there. Okay. Okay. Wonderful. You are listening to Senior Salute Radio, presented by the Elder and Disability Law Firm of Victoria L. Collier, and we are currently speaking with Brian Smiley of the law firm Smiley, Bishop, and Porter. And Brian, you know, we've heard about scams and uh, fraud and everything. What are Ponzi schemes, and are they really that common, or do we just hear about them a lot because they make big news? Um. I think I get an email invitation to something that is a Ponzi scheme about twice a day. So they're very common. <laughs> the solicitation is common. <laughs> the solicitation yeah. is common, and you wouldn't get that many solicitations if they weren't prevalent and working. Mm-hmm. Uh, Ponzi schemes are fraudulent enterprises where a person says they promise a, a high rate of return to investors. And the way they provide the high rate of return, at least initially, is they take in a, Mr. A, and he invests $100,000. They promise him 20% return, and his returns are not made by virtue of putting his $100,000 to work. That money comes from Mrs. B's money, mm-hmm. and Mrs. B has promised a high rate of return, so the fraudster has to get Mr. C to contribute money. Now, of course, the Mr. A, B, and C don't know about each other. Of course. Okay, so they just think they're getting a good return. They, right, right. And, uh, and these are all frauds. Uh, you can look at statistics, and you'll see that uh, by about, I think, 16 layers of the, the, uh, or levels of the pyramid, you eventually would have to involve the entire Uni- United States population to make the thing work. There was actually an elder law attorney here in Atlanta, and I use that term loosely, elder law attorney, that was convicted of Ponzi scheme of his senior citizen clients. Um, I would say I'm not great on timing, but probably about four to five years ago um, right here in Atlanta. So even, you know, we can't just trust those who we believe should be trusted advisors either. We always have to be looking out for ourselves. So you said that one of the red flags was these unbelievable high interest returns, you know, expectation of returns. What else might be a red flag for a Ponzi scheme? Well, ironically, either a very high rate of return or a pretty high rate of return regardless of what the market does because Bernie Madoff ran a Ponzi scheme for decades and he didn't say I'm going to give you 20 or 30 percent what he said was I'll give you I think it's eight and a half or ten percent something very reasonable very reasonable every year no matter what I can take the risk out of the market well guess what nobody can do that (laughs) so that's that's a sign the other sign is if you're essentially sworn to secrecy when you enter into the transaction. You know, we, we can't tell you uh, we're, we're dealing with uh, black diamonds from Africa, but we can't tell you anymore, and you have to sign an agreement not to tell anybody how we're making our money. So a confidentiality agreement, which sounds very legal. Right. Okay. Right. Uh, the, the other thing is the first time you have trouble getting your money out, there will be some seemingly plausible excuse 
and then it'll keep happening over and over again. And that's the sign the deal's unraveling. And so how does someone get away with it for 10, 20 years? Well, not a lot of people do. Uh, Bernie Madoff was unusually smart, and he had an unusually large Ponzi scheme. Uh, the answer is typically that they inspire a lot of confidence in people. They keep people believing when they shouldn't believe. And they're called con men for a reason. Con stands for confidence. Confidence. Yeah. And convict as well. <laughs> often, but not often enough. That's right. So how can people avoid being victims of investment fraud? That's a really good question, and it's a tough question. Um, a, only believe that which is logical and believable. Uh, I deal with a financial advisor myself, and you can imagine how skeptical I am. Uh, and he tells me, Brian, if I ever beat the market, you should consider that an accident. I'm not trying to beat the market. In fact, why should you try to beat the market? Market's just fine. Thank you. Uh, so if they promise too much, if there's not absolute transparency, in other words, a transaction is done, there is a confirmation slip from a reputable financial institution, there's a monthly statement from somebody you know that shows that it occurred, that's, that's a way to avoid fraud. The other is to absolutely make sure that you are only dealing with licensed professionals. Having a license doesn't guarantee that you're honest, but not having a license is a pretty good sign that you're not doing something legitimate. Well, and I remember one case that uh, my law firm brought to your law firm, and that was a uh, sibling set that lived together, and they had a once-licensed agent, um, and so this is an example of fraud um, where, you know, once there was an indication that the money was going to be taken away from that agency, uh, he immediately put everything into these fixed annuities that you're talking about that we could not get out of. And it was through that process that uh, once we got you on board that you all found out that he had lost his license and never even told the client. Right, right. And, and the FINRA website will help you find that information out because even after somebody's no longer licensed, their records remain for a number of years, and you can determine why they lost their license. And so would you recommend as a general course, like estate planning attorneys, we recommend that people review their documents every three to five years. Would you recommend that people who have their investments with a broker or with a wealth manager, that they check their licensure every year? Or, I mean, what do you do as far as ongoing due diligence, assuming you did it to begin with? Um, that's, this is the first time anybody's ever asked me that question. That's a really <laughs> good question. Uh, I, I think looking at it periodically is a good idea. I think also making sure that anytime there's anything unexplained in your account, it, if, if it's not immediately corrected, by which I mean weeks, a couple of weeks at most, that you take it up a level. If, if you're dealing with a retail brokerage firm, you send a letter, you send an email to the firm and demand an explanation because they are required to review it. That's one other point is if you ever deal with a financial advisor at a brokerage firm and they tell you to email them at their personal email address or mail them only to their home address, that's a bad sign because – all of their communications are supposed to be reviewed by their superiors. And if there's some reason why they don't want their superior to see your email, 
it's probably not good for you. But that probably doesn't that advice probably isn't as good for people for financial advisors who work for themselves. Is that right? Because they might, or or one that's moving from one firm to another. Because uh, I, I have seen that where it's kind of like, you know, I'm kind of leaving this one and I'm starting over here or I'm starting my own thing. Is that a red flag? It doesn't have to be. Doesn't have I mean, to be. That people okay. do change in the business. The business has changed a lot yeah. over the years, and there are legitimate reasons why you might move from one firm to another. But I still would not send it to them personally. I would still say, look, on day day one, you're registered at firm A. Day two, you're registered at firm B. You know, which of those two firms do I send it to? Now, when someone has identified that there's a problem, or I think there's a problem, how do they make a claim against their broker? Um, This gets you to the world of securities arbitration. Basically, uh, every brokerage firm I know of requires its clients to sign an, an agreement that any disputes between the firm and the customer will be arbitrated at FINRA, actually, um, and it eliminates the option of the client to take the firm to court. That's a very controversial thing. It's been the law since 1987 that they're allowed to do that. Uh, a lot of people think that that's not fair. Investors ought to be able to go to court. Uh, I understand the criticism, but I think that FINRA arbitration is a pretty good resolution for most people of most disputes. So what you do is you bring a claim in FINRA arbitration. Uh, I would suggest that particularly if it's a substantial sum of money, I think you need a lawyer to do it because the other side will certainly have a lawyer. <laughs> They're savvier, <laughs> they generally are savvier. speaking. They are savvier. And there's a process. It essentially takes around a year from start to finish, maybe a little less, which is much faster than court, as you know, Victoria. Mm-hmm. So that's an advantage. And are there punitive damages like you can have in court for someone who's actually intentionally committing fraud against you? Yes. We've we've won seven figures of punitive damages in situations. And with lawyers, people don't hire lawyers because they think they're expensive. Um, Is the typical uh, lawsuit like this, is it like on contingency, whereas you only – pay when you win or is it hourly is there a range of different ways that lawyers charge for their services there is a range and uh, most typically we will do cases on a contingency Uh, there's some situations where we'll do a hybrid or somebody might pay a fixed amount or a reduced hourly amount and a contingency or if somebody wants to pay pure hourly that's fine too so it really doesn't matter I mean, it matters to the client and whatever relationship the lawyer. I think has if they have that. a meritorious case, mm-hmm. and it's against a firm that has some wherewithal, so that there is a recovery, you shouldn't have any problem getting somebody to take your case. You just need to make sure you have somebody who actually understands the way FINRA arbitration and FINRA rules work, as opposed to general fraud litigation, because it's different. And you know. Just because there's a billion lawyers out there doesn't mean there's, you know, the one right next door that can do and manage competently a securities litigation uh, arbitration, right? Right. There, there is, in fact, a bar association of lawyers who do this for investors most of the time. It's called the Public Investors Arbitration Bar Association, PIABA. PIABA. Well, speaking of um, uh, meritorious cases. What I'd like you to do is I'm going to have you 
give me uh, a scenario of two cases. One, I'd like to hear about the most egregious case you've either worked on or know of because of your profession. Wow. Uh, I've been working on it lately, actually. Uh, it is a broker with a who actually went to two different firms uh, in the Atlanta area. Uh, he seemed to have among his client base widows and, uh, and the elderly and his penchant was to tell people that they needed to take certain money out of their account or out of their IRA and roll it over and send it to him to his DBA doing business as business and uh, he stole it he simply stole the money and he fabricated now that's uh, unfortunately that's a pattern we see a lot and it's egregious because these people are at the end of their lives where they can't earn any more money, basically, right. and it affects their ongoing quality of life, which is why we do this show, is to educate people on how to maintain a quality of life. And while I always tell people money can't make you happy, it certainly can make you more comfortable, and it can maintain a quality of life if you maintain your money properly. And its absence can make you pretty miserable. <laughs> Absolutely. And I will add this, that losing money is a bad thing under any circumstance. But when somebody messes with your IRA and causes money to be lost from your IRA but comes out, you can end up owing taxes on money that you never really got to use. And is there – does the IRS have a – sorry, you were scammed. Uh, we're going to waive this <laughs> provision. Wouldn't it be nice? Uh, no. <laughs> so, no. Um, and so, you know, not everybody is going to have – what they feel is an egregious case. And they'll be like, you know, maybe my advisor shouldn't have done this, um, but I don't know that it's worthy of taking. So tell me a case that, you know, is worthy of, of, of bringing okay. to a lawyer that maybe isn't the kind you're going to hear on the news. Okay. Uh, a broker will have an older client, and uh, the client will have a portfolio that is – uh, vastly over-concentrated in three, four, or five equities. Uh, maybe, you know, way too much of a, one particular stock that the broker's in love with. Mm -hmm. uh, the broker, the stock will start going down. The broker should have never put them that much in only equities. But the stock starts going down, and the broker can't bear the thought of realizing a loss. So he keeps the client in it as it sinks all the way. Uh, that is a case where maybe it's more negligence than fraud. The broker may not have had a significant financial incentive to do the wrong thing, but he made, he made a mistake. Okay. He was sort of like a doctor who malpracticed, mm -hmm. and he lets the client go down with the ship. That's a case that's more a judgment call than simply stealing money, mm -hmm. uh, but it's negligence nonetheless, and it's the kind of thing that you can recover for. Wonderful. And so, Brian, how can people, if they feel like their advisor is either, you know, not giving enough attention to their file, which is, you know, can lead to that negligent situation, um, or just maybe they're churning the case, which, you know, making bad decisions on behalf for their client about their investments. How do they get in touch with your firm to maybe have you assess the situation? Well, uh, I can start with my phone number. It's 770-829-3850. Our website is always a mouthful. It is sbplplaw 
dot com. <laughs> Which is the first letter of all the partners right. in the law firm. Um, wonderful. And um, so you are listening to Senior Salute Radio, and at this time, we are going to take a special moment to salute a senior. And the senior I'd like to salute, we've talked about it, we've danced around about it, and really I'd like to salute that couple, uh, the sibling couple that Brian's firm and mine worked on together, in that the um, one of them was a lawyer by profession uh, who then had mental decline and had done, you know, what was very acceptable at the time of her day. She had a will and powers of attorney in place. Um, and her sibling was taking care of her because of the cognitive decline. And they had had an advisor for a long time. And why I want to honor them is that when it was brought to their attention, um, the sibling who still had some mental acuity, uh, doing the best that he could for his sister, uh, when it was brought to their attention, they made some very difficult emotional decisions to go against that advisor who they had been, as they would say, friends with for several years. He would give, come over to the house and give them cards and very personalized attention. Um, and I want to salute them for their bravery in doing what was right. And I should say the brother's bravery in doing what was right for his sister uh, who had been... Um, uh, disadvantaged by her advisor's actions and uh, taking care of his sister regardless. So that's who I'd like to salute today. And for confidentiality, I won't share their name. <laughs> so uh, so with that, um, you have uh, been listening to Senior Salute, which airs live every Friday at 3 p.m. and is also available 24-7 online by visiting seniorsalute.businessradiox.com. Dot com. You can also follow us on Twitter and like us on Facebook. And I want to thank our guests and our listeners. We salute you. <laughs>